Take your Bibles and uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 5, please. And this is one of those wonderful times where uh, we get to see prayer answered like three minutes after it was prayed. Uh, Our ruling elder, Dwight Hazards, just led us in prayer, and one of the things that he's asked for is God to speak to us in His Word and for us to be able to listen. And now we have this opportunity. Uh, As here in Isaiah 5, the Lord will speak to us. Uh, Again, I say this often, but it's important. I I say it not because I can't think of other things to say. Uh, I say it because I can't think of other things more important to say, Uh, which is this, that when we read this, this is God speaking to you today. This isn't just, you know, a voice in the ether. This isn't just like, oh, I happened to catch, you know, my favorite song on the radio at just the perfect time. You know, I was having a low day, and it kind of picked me up. This is the Lord God Almighty who planned before the foundation of the universe that you'd get to hear this today. So this is God speaking to you. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. Its briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness. But behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. 
Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows Himself in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets." For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels are like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They growl over it on that day like growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. It would be good if we prayed. Lord, we thank you that not all parts of your word are easy for us to understand. And when we do understand easily, sometimes they make us feel good, but sometimes they're really hard. They hurt our hearts a little bit. And so we pray that you would give light and life to your word even now. We know your word's perfect. We're the problem in the equation. Would your spirit be pleased to work in us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this week, 
for some, is a busy week, I guess. This Tuesday night, we did have to uh, cancel our session meeting, change the date, because of a very significant time for some, right? Tuesday's what? A holiday, I think, Valentine's Day. Some remember that. Some don't. It's okay. You don't have to. It's all right. I mean, actually, if you stop and think about it, the multitude of holidays that we have in America now is really quite staggering. I know there's financial reasons for that and all sorts of other things. But just the sheer number of holidays that I get to have to celebrate my wife. I mean, it's a lot. You have Valentine's Day if we choose to do that. You have birthday. not going to say when that is. Mother's Day. Even Christmas, we have our anniversary. We have so many different things to celebrate, opportunities to reflect on the beauty and excellence and wonder that is my wife. Now, why is it that we have so many of those? Are they wasted? I mean, obviously not. My wife is lovely. They're not, not wasted at all. But instead, what you think about it, if you actually pause and reflect, each holiday, each different kind of uh, opportunity gives us a chance to, to emphasize something slightly different. I have an opportunity in our anniversary to remember and reflect on how we met two decades ago and to the joy of those early days that has now been surpassed even by the joy of these later days. Or to have Mother's Day where I have opportunity to reflect on how God provided me a wonderful mother for my children and to delight in how God has made her in such a way. We have different things, different holidays that let us focus on different parts of the person, the different pieces of who they are and how they function. You think about actually even our holiday with our relationship, our holidays with the military. We have different holidays that emphasize different aspects of the military culture of our country. We have some where we remember those that have passed on in their service, We have some that remind us of our current folks in service. Some holidays we remember military deeds from several hundred years ago. Some we just think about what's happening even within our own lifetimes. I think this process is a healthy process, though, where we take kind of one idea and we kind of view it from different perspectives to see different parts and pieces of what that is. Very similarly, if you were to go and buy a diamond ring for this holiday, I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, that's none of my business, but when you sat down with the jeweler, you would not only look at the diamond from one side. That would be weird, really, wouldn't it? The jeweler presents you the diamond, you're like, oh, I don't need to see the back, or that side, or that side, or even this side. I just want to look at it from the top. I only want one side. The jeweler would be like, I like selling to this person because they don't care. And they have no knowledge of what's going on. Instead, what do we normally do? We put it under the light so we can see all the sparkles and we rotate it so that we can see all of the different sides and all of the different facets and all of the different bits of brilliance about that thing. That idea of taking one kind of concept and rotating it so that we get to see all of the different bits of brilliance, all of the different sides and situations is very much how prophecy works in the Scriptures. 
I mean, realistically, if we wanted to boil the whole book of Isaiah down, it's this. Sin is bad, God is good, he provides Jesus. Okay, we're done, and there's the whole thing, right? A year and a quarter's worth of sermons in three sentences. But instead, what do we do with books like this? Do we just say those three three sentences over and over again? Well, I mean, I hope so in some sense. But what we do is we take the diamond out, And for a few brief moments in the sermon, we hold it under the light and we rotate it back and forth so that we can see all of the different facets and bits of brilliance. That's what in many ways each chapter of the book of Isaiah is. It's a a different rotation so you get to see a different polished face of the brilliance of the Word of God. Now, part of the challenge again with Isaiah is as you turn it, many of the the facets, many of the faces are really quite unpleasant to look at. It's the nature of really prophecy all throughout the Old Testament, your major prophets especially, but your minor as well. So much of it is just negative, but for a purpose, to see the brilliance and the beauty of the Word of God. This one starts, again, with a a slight variation on a theme that we've already established in the book. God has been describing his people, but he's been describing them as something that he's building, namely a city. And we've had chapters 2 and 3 where the city has been built, 1, 2, and 3 where the city has been built, but then the city has been unfaithful and been destroyed. Now in chapter 5, the last chapter of the introduction, he changes the metaphor just slightly so that it glimmers just slightly differently and builds not a city but a vineyard. And here, in fact, actually, he does make a slightly different point. Again, the diamond is being rotated, sparkling a little differently. As he describes in verses 1 through 7, him building, God himself building a vineyard, his perfect vineyard. And in this, we see God kind of really at the beginning conversation about sin is that he loves his people. And in fact, actually, even beyond loves his people, we might say in our kind of calloused cultural way of saying it, he sets us up for success. He loves his people. The the, the beginning point of, of the starting point of the conversation of redemption is with God loving his people. Verse 1, it starts with, um, I'm glad I'm not called to Isaiah's ministry for a multitude of reasons, Uh, one of which is at least the first part of this chapter, if not the entirety of it, was a song that he sang for the people of God. I'm thrilled I'm not called to this ministry. I'm sure you're called, uh, very thrilled about that calling as well. He starts with a song. Let me sing you a song. I'm going to sing you a song about my beloved, about my Lord and Savior. I'm going to sing you a song about Jehovah. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And the song that I'm going to sing is about his love concerning his people. It's his vineyard. And what has this God done is that he's built this vineyard. And what is described really in verses 1 through 4 is the beauty and brilliance of the best vineyard you could imagine. There's all sorts of kind of weird Hebrew grammar words here that are highlighting the kind of the beauty, the brilliance, the wonder, the extra special nature of what God is doing. 
My beloved built a vineyard on a very fertile hill. This is a a part of the land that's extremely fertile. It, It has all the nutrients and things that are needed for plants to grow. It's in the perfect place for plants to grow. He dug it out. He got rid of the big stones. He got rid of the small rocks, and he planted it with the choice vines. These vines are the ones that are specifically designed to give a very special type of grape, the best of grapes. And knowing that that would be a danger of all sorts of kinds, so what does he do? He builds a watchtower in the middle of it. He builds a wall around the outside of it. He builds a hedge around the outside of that so that nothing can get in and with the owner looking over the entirety of his property. Even hewed out in the middle of it a wine vat so that as the grapes were harvested, they would be able to be turned into that great resource of wine, the picture of God's blessing. He begins with this portrait of love that when he interacts with his people, it's even from the starting point, it was one designed to be in affection and kindness and love. This is actually very much descriptively kind of how we could think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Makes the entirety of the world good but wild. And then in one place makes that part of the world good but tame. And he places his people in the midst of it and says, serve me forever and take this garden and expand it to the ends of the earth. Everything's good, but it's wild out there. And your job is to tame the rest of the world. It's this kind of beautiful starting place. This wonderful starting place of God establishing blessing for his people now here in chapter 5, not referring to the Garden of Eden as much as even how Israel as a people group started. The Lord loved them. He cared for them. He watched over them. He was in relationship with them. But there was a problem. There's a big problem, in fact. Actually, you look at the end of verse 2. He, he waited for it to yield good grapes, the best of grapes, the very special kind of grapes. He, he planted the perfect vineyard and waited for the perfect results. But instead, it yielded wild grapes, not cultivated grapes, not special grapes, not good grapes, and we would call this bad fruit. This vineyard, instead of producing the kind of blessings that uh, was planted for it, ends up yielding all of the bad fruit. And in verse 3, God himself identifies what's going on. These are, uh, it's an analogy, it's a word picture. God isn't actually planting a vineyard, instead he's planting a nation. Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah, and what happened, the people of God yielded all sorts of of evil. Yielded all sorts of evil. In fact, actually, it goes to intensify kind of the problem here is to say, look, the real problem in the conversation between God and everyone else is not God. He's not the issue. He's not the problem. We are. In fact, actually, we could go one step further to say that the circumstances aren't even the problem. We are. Now, this is, I I think, an incredibly important point to kind of make in our uh, current cultural moment. This biblical idea of sin, that the Lord is blessing his people, that he loves his people, but that sin springs out of us, kind of flies directly in the face 
of what the liberal, and I don't mean political, I mean theological liberal, the liberal agenda has pushed in our country for roughly 200 years. You see, the liberal approach to sin follows a very specific pattern. What it does is it is an attempt to take sin and remove it from a conversation about me and to move it something outside of me, to to get it external to me. So whereas the Bible starts with a conversation about sin saying, you're the problem, and you're the problem, and you're the problem, and you're the problem, and I'm the problem. The liberal approach to sin tries to take sin and move it outside of me, to get it away from me, to say that, well, I'm not the problem, sin is the problem. And you can kind of track it through American history as our theology has developed where it moved from I'm being the problem to kind of some sort of external mystical thing of sin is the problem to society became the problem. And when society became the problem, well, we knew we could change society, couldn't we? And what did you see suddenly get pushed aggressively? Well, we can, we can increase education. We can increase the size of the government because we can legislate righteousness. We can even go so far, we'll ban alcohol. We'll have a temperance movement that's all about trying to control people's actions because sin is external to them. All we have to do is worry about their hands. And interestingly, as it's moved kind of from a a larger problem of sin in society, institutional things as a whole, it's now moved even beyond that in the last 10 years we've gotten to watch. It's been wild to see where sin has now kind of left even the societal idea and become really, it's the problem is just the people that disagree with me. We've moved the, the location of sin to those who have radically different positions from me or perhaps even barely different positions from me or even just those that cannot affirm my positions. Those that don't like me. Those that don't like my views. Those that don't tell me everything I believe is right. You see, this is, I think, probably one of the great catastrophes in our current cultural and generational moment is we're watching uh, a nation that is aggressively working to say that sin is everybody's problem and everything's problem except for mine. The failings of our nation, well, they're systemic. It's, it's the institutions, it's the systems. And the failings of our culture, well, it's Hollywood's fault or it's my neighbor's fault or it's those weirdos online that hang out in the creepy parts of the internet, it's their fault or it's everybody's fault but mine. It's everybody's fault but mine. Well, interestingly, the way the text continues from there is that the Lord then explains, well, what am I going to do? Sin has consequences. Verses 5 through 7, really where the uncomfortability starts, where he then explains he's going to destroy his vineyard. He's going to destroy those people that he's set up for success, those that he has given the ability to live, those that he's given the ability to choose, those that he has made in his image he's going to destroy, ultimately here referencing the nation of Israel. They're going to be wiped off the planet. They're going to be removed. And you think, well, that, that, that's a bit harsh. I mean, but if you think that sin is external, if you think that sin is other, if you think that sin is uh, the other people's problems and not my own, the rest of the chapter doesn't make sense. Because what follows 
Verses 8 through the end of the chapter is the song gets really grim. I don't know what kind of tune it had if he was still singing at this point, but it probably wouldn't have been a, you know, top 40 hit. This isn't the one that plays on the radio because what follows is a list of woes. It's a list of explanations of what sin looks like. This is the problem as these six woes begin to explain what the human heart looks like apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a grim place to be. Verses 8 through 10 show us the first of the woes. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. We're already lost. (laughs) What does that mean? What's being portrayed here is actually a picture, a word picture of a person who's captivated by unending insatiable greed. A person who, rather than being content, what God has, content with what God has given them, is working to take this house and this house and to connect them, and this field and that field, and to connect them so that suddenly your plot gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you can shove everybody else out of the way of your gigantic, wealthy compound. It's a portrait of a person who can never have enough And their never having enough then works out at the expense of their neighbors where they're constantly trying to make their um, greed go away through the loss of another person's property. A heart that's discontented, craving more and more and more. And this is where I think, uh, if we're going to be honest, the chapter should get a little bit inconvenient for us. I mean, we can all kind of start in that opening paragraph and go, okay, I mean, I know God loves his people, all right, yeah, all right. And I know that sin's a problem, okay, all right. But then the first woe is a warning against greed to perhaps the greediest nation to ever live on planet Earth. And that gets to be a little bit kind of close to home, doesn't it? Where it steps on my toes a little bit. Where this idea of contentment is just genuinely lost in American culture. We have all of the affluence that we could ever imagine, and it's ended up creating in us a situation in which we have more discontent than we've ever, ever witnessed There's a multitude of ways in which this has worked out. It's intriguing. One of these is um, uh, (laughs) it's the lie of choice. This one's been very well documented throughout kind of sociology and stuff is that, interestingly, the more choices you have, the less happy you are with them in the end. Uh, If women know there's two pairs of jeans that are available in the market, they will go try both of them on. They will find the pair that they like better. They will pay whatever the price is, and they will walk out thinking they got the best they could buy for the best price they could buy, and they will walk out by and large happy. How many women are happy today when they go buy jeans? There are roughly, what, 9,000 different styles that you could possibly purchase? So that no matter what you purchase, you walk out thinking, I didn't get the best fit, I didn't get what I liked the most, and I paid too much for it, and there's a better deal somewhere else. This is how we operate. It's this this amazing thing in our heart that our hearts are broken. 
And our relationship with stuff is unholy. And our relationship with wealth is unholy. Here we are, the wealthiest planet, I mean the wealthiest nation in the history of the planet. And contentment is so far away. Again, it's been well documented in the United States, which state is the most generous financially. Anybody know? Don't say it out loud. Over the last, it's been for ages, for eons, it's Mississippi. Per capita, Mississippi is the poorest state in the Union, and per capita, Mississippi is the most generous state in the Union. People in Mississippi give more of their actual percentage of the, the wealth that they have than any other state in the Union. And interestingly, they have the least amount of resources to do so. Weirdly enough, if you go to the richest states, they're often the ones at the very lowest points of what they're willing to give. Because our hearts are broken. We have so much wealth and we hoard it and we, we, we aren't happy. Woe number two, verses 11 and 12 Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as white inflames them. This is not just a warning against alcohol abuse, so that does show up a couple of times here. The bigger issue is actually verse 12. They have lyre and harp, tambourine, flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. They've reduced their life to an entirely human thing and disregard the works of God. The entirety of their existence has been kind of reshaped to think about it just as is a human thing. It's just me going about living my life, finding my fulfillment, trying to fill myself with the things that make me feel good about myself, that make me feel affirmed, that, that create a, a greater positive self-image to live in a world that is so negative. It's, it's a life that's preoccupied with self. And interestingly, you have here in contrast verses 11 and 12, uh, 11 is alcohol is presented as part of the problem for them, which interestingly, just a couple, of chap- or a couple of verses prior, alcohol was proof of God's blessing. Right? He was planting a vineyard with the best of, of grapes to make the best of wine. And here you have these people, rather than regarding God's blessing, rather than regarding this thing that God gives, they're abusing it and misusing it so that, verse 12, they would not have to think about what God is doing. So they wouldn't have to think about God being at work in their lives. And I think again, man, this just steps on our toes again, doesn't it? As we live in a time in which we are all prone to evaluating our world on an entirely human and horizontal element and to ignore the vertical aspect of how we're made, to ignore the vertical aspect of how we exist to downplay how our God is at work how comfortable we are, again, even with the idea of luck, how comfortable we are with the idea of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, how slow we are to give God the credit for everything. In the happy days and in the sad ones too, that our God is at work and He is good. I suspect this is part of why I think 
I think this is why we're seeing our nation get increasingly kind of mentally and emotionally fragile. I mean, you watch like the greatest generation, you've watched generations that have fought in World War I and World War II and come home seeing things that no human should ever see and still be able to function in some fashion. And then those that fought in Vietnam, and again, seeing things that no human should ever have to see and still being able to function in some fashion. And now we're increasingly seeing a culture that reads something on the internet that hurts our feelings, and we fall apart for three months. Why? Because we're losing the kind of verticality of, we're losing this idea that we're defined not by this. We're defined by that. We're defined by our relationship with God and on top of that, every bit of our day, of our existence is something that he is using for his purposes. 18 and 19, our third woe, here we have these laboring in defiance. They're just straight up defiant against the Lord God. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. They're, they're, they're pulling sin with them. Everywhere they go, they take sin with them. It's kind of their business. It's transactionally what they do. But then 19 and 20, 19, I love this one. This one I might have offended me a little bit. The portrait of these people who are kind of defiant against God mouth off to him saying, whatever you're going to do, God, you better do it quickly because I want to see how it ends. Yeah, there's some chuckles, right? Boy, that, that, that one hurts my feelings. That one hits a little close to home. I mean, how many times have I found myself, even in my prayer time or my, my, my private contemplations of what God is doing, saying, God, you just got to do it faster. I'm not sure we can wait that long. I'm not sure we've got time. You got, you got to be faster. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come so that we may see it. It's literally out of the text. What you have is a people who bring impatience with them, who bring discontent with them, who bring rebellion with them, who bring greed with them, who are not content to sit at the feet of their Savior. Woe number four, verse 20, and these start getting shorter and more awful. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And this is those that are actively, intentionally confusing everyone. And not just confusing them the way that a Algebra 2 teacher confuses many of their students. Sorry if you're an Algebra 2 teacher. But what this is a person who's morally confusing, befuddling those in their midst so that what seems good and right and proper and true, you find people taking the wrong side. I mean, we see this, and one of the ones that's just been so nauseating about this lately is how increasingly in our cultural climate, you're watching abortion being treated as a sacrament. 
as being treated as something good and right and proper and holy. And friends, it's evil. There's no good there. It's evil. It can be forgiven by Jesus. I mean, we're not, it's not the unforgivable sin, but it needs to be labeled for what it is. We're now, we're watching in these last really three years where our culture's beginning to take a perverted sexual ethic and holding it forward as what is good and right and proper and true. We're watching a nation that's beginning to take good and call it evil and evil and call it good, and we've got everything backwards and upside down and inside out. Woe to those people. And again, I'd like to say, well, I mean, praise God, that doesn't come into the church. But realistically, I mean, I'm just going to be candid. The sheer amount of time that we read our Bibles in comparison to the sheer amount of time that we consume our entertainments, I am in no way confident that I could say this does not pertain to us at all. I mean, just being candid. Many of us will consume what? If you're on a good Bible reading plan, you'll consume roughly 14 chapters of Scripture this week. 14 chapters of Scripture this week will take you roughly an hour to read, max, and that's if you're a slow reader. And will you consume only one hour of entertainments this week? Or we'll consume most of us, what, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 hours of entertainment this week? We're drinking from the wrong well, and I have a hard time thinking that this won't happen to us where we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of some of these conversations and equations. Well, number five and 21 Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. And this, again, it's the byproduct of the others and compounds them rather than being in love with the Word of God. And instead of having that being kind of our number one commitment to glorify God according to the Scriptures, to let our minds begin to dictate what's right and wrong. Rather than being dominated by the Word of God, rather than finding our foundation in the Word of God, letting our own opinions quietly seep in. And then woe number six. This is another awful one. Verses 22 and 23. Again, you see the wine shows up in this one oftentimes. Woe to those who hear us at drinking wine. That's a fun, fun idea. Heroes at drinking wine, valiant men and mixing strong drink, were skilled at pleasure. But we don't protect the innocent. Skilled at drinking wine, valiant men, mixing strong drink, 23. But what do they do? They acquit the guilty for a bribe and they deprive the innocent of his right. They're on the wrong side, they're on the wrong team. Because their pleasures have infected their minds rather than the Word of God, they're on the wrong side. This is going to be a theme that you're going to see run throughout the entirety of the book of Isaiah and through almost all of the prophets of a willingness to be on the wrong team because it's easy or because it feels good. It's intriguing. These are six terrible woes. And well, why are they so terrible? Why is it such a big deal? I mean, obviously they're a big deal to God, but why does that matter so much? Well, just very quickly, ooh, I'm late. I'm going to go faster. 
Verses 13 through 17 and verses 24 through the end of the chapter, you have God working out why there's such a big deal to him. Verses 13 through 17, you get to see kind of the consequences of these actions. These six woes produce this type of lifestyle. Therefore, my people go into exile. The Lord's going to destroy them and send them into exile. Why? For lack of knowledge. They don't know anything. Their honored men go hungry. There's nothing to eat. Their multitude is parched with thirst. There's nothing to drink. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and has opened its mouth beyond measure. The only mouth that is filled in the entirety of the story is the grave because everyone dies. The multitude of the nobility go down. The partiers go down. In verse 15, everyone is made low. The proud is made low. And in verse 16, the Lord finds justice in the destruction of all of these people. What's the consequences? These behaviors are the kind of behaviors that inflame the flesh but do not nourish the spirit. And as a result, death follows. Verses 24 through the end is awful. These are the portraits of a city that's being destroyed, of a nation that's just being absolutely blown away. Verse 26, God calling for all the nations from far away, whistling from the ends of the earth for them to come. And verse 27 begins this awful description of the enemies of God that would come and destroy them. None is weary. These armies aren't weary. They don't stumble. None slumbers or sleep. They don't have a uh, waistband loose. They're ready to fight. Their sandals are ready to to run. Their arrows are sharp. Their bows are bent. They just come in and destroy them. The therefores are horrible. And honestly, the first time this is written, first time this is read, there's, there's a very looming kind of very serious and important conversation taking place in, kind of behind the scenes. Well, by our reading at least, it's not behind the scenes to them. Is that Israel as a nation has not obeyed God and as a result there's destruction. You have uh, the northern kingdom is destroyed in 722, your southern kingdom is destroyed in 586. They're wiped off the planet. And they kind of disappear as nations for a very, very long time. And you see all of this fulfilled in some fashion in those destructions, but it doesn't stop there. Because this is part of what makes these kind of prophecies so terribly uncomfortable, is that while they are talked about in a way that could easily be satisfied by Assyria or Babylon, they're also talked about in a way that can't be. Because what's being talked about behind this is recognizing Israel wasn't ultimately the problem. And Babylon wasn't ultimately the solution. The sinful human heart is ultimately the problem. And the solution to the sinful human heart is hell forever. You see, this is why we take like the introduction, take the diamond and rotate it around a little bit more because in these terrible chapters like Isaiah 5, we see sin is really bad. And it's fair and right and proper and good and true that God should destroy everyone for it. Your heart is the problem and so is mine. But the fun part, I think, is that all of these various word pictures of God's destruction, verses 5 and 6, where he describes his destruction of the vineyard as as a word picture, 
verses 13 through uh, 16 as a, a nation being invaded and being, you know, starving to death and like a siege. In verses 26 through 30, with a new nation coming in and destroying them, well, 26 through 28, like another nation invading them, 29 and 30 is the language of a lion tearing apart its prey. All of these things are designed to impress upon us the weight of our sin, but also, and more importantly, the beauty of what takes place on the cross. The beauty of what takes place on the cross. So that when we confess the creed and we say he descended into hell, what we're saying is on the cross, he descended into the totality of the wrath of God. And every verbal picture that we can find in chapter 5 telling us about God's wrath is satisfied on the cross. So that when he says at the end, it's finished. What he means is for the people of God, all of these terrible illustrations are finished. The wrath of God is satisfied. It's like it's a cup that Jesus drinks in its entirety and there's none left over. I can't drink from the cup of the wrath of God. It's already finished. He already drank it all. There's nothing left. Passages like chapter 5, I think, should do maybe a couple of things for us. One is it should give us just a moment of pause about our sin. A moment of pause about our sin, and and I'll be candid. What you're going to see in the book of Isaiah and in all the prophets is there's a long-running conversation about injustice. And that is a conversation that traditionally the white suburbs does not do super-duper well. Honestly, just candidly, we don't. And namely because I think we don't see ourselves as being any part of the problem in any situation because that's how I think about sin. It's your fault, not mine. Chapters like this should give us a little bit of pause to think about in my own heart, where am I on the wrong team? Where in my own heart am I on the wrong side? Where in my own heart Am I greedy or disregarding the works of God? But then even beyond that is that as we have those moments of pause to be reminded that the Lord loves his people. That this is what Jesus is the solution to. This is why the Isaiah is called oftentimes the fifth gospel is because it so clearly is presenting Christ is the solution to this. The only solution to this. My sin is the problem, your sin is the problem. Christ and Christ alone is the one who can both cleanse and forgive. And being candid, again, some of us have been Christians perhaps a long time, and we know that that warmth that we've had, that that excitement that we began with, has kind of grown a little bit cold. And sometimes, not every time, sometimes, That excitement has grown cold exactly for the confession that Brandon took us through. That for various reasons, oftentimes are connected to our own sin. The Lord gives us a season (laughs) where our heart does grow cold because we're in love with our sin. And sermons like this and passages like this, I think, are probably designed to just give you the reminder it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, stop and repent. 
Find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you with a full and total heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love is all-encompassing even to the ends of the earth. Would you bless us for Christ's sake? Amen.